Welcome to this small Tin World concert, uh, a little potpourri of items for your delectation. My name is Charles Gard and I'll be introducing this afternoon's event. I'm hoping we'll be through by two, but it might go as many Tin World debates have just run over very slightly. If any of you have to leave at two, do feel free to get up and, and leave. Uh, it's not a formal sitting of the court, so you don't have to bow to Mr. President, but I know he does like it if you do. <laughs> <clears throat> the artists this afternoon, John Moss, Annie Kizik, Kurjan Kujak, and a surprise item later, he's upstairs warming up. But first of all, let me hand you over to the President of Tinwald, the Honourable Steve Roden. Thank you. Thank you, Charles. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the legislative buildings, especially those of you who have not been in this place before. Um, I can say with confidence that uh, in the 113-year-old history of this chamber, there is, has been nothing at all like what we're about to see over the next hour. It is certainly going to be a first. And it's, it's very appropriate that uh, we witness in this chamber something a little bit different in this 150th anniversary of the Isle of Man taking its first steps to full democracy with uh, exactly 150 years ago this month the first uh, democratic elections to the House of Keys. It uh, wasn't everyone, it was only property-owning males, of course, but it was the first step. And this lunchtime concert is going to, I think, uh, um, focus on some of the more recent uh, political happenings, certainly well within living memory, that uh, took, took place during that 150-year path to democracy, if I could put it that way. And uh, I shan't tempt fate by saying any more, because uh, some of it will be a, a, a surprise. Charles, thank you and welcome. Thank you very much. We begin with our first item, a song from Kurjan Kujak, and I'll ask Annie Kizik to introduce it. Thank you. Well, fast am I. I've got to remind you, Charles. Um, few lovely days last weekend, and it's uh, hard to believe, but soon we'll be all galloping to the fair as July the 5th comes upon us, which is a handy cue for our song, our opening song, Liga Gusavaga, Galloping to the Fair. Liga, Liga Gusavaga, Liga, Liga Gusavaga, Liga, Liga Gusavaga, Suriyanina, Liga, Liga Gusavaga, Liga, Liga Yeah. 
Thank you very much. This is an Isle of Architecture event, so I shall begin by giving you a little bit of architectural history. Just to get your bearings, through that wall upstairs there is the Legislative Council, eight members elected by the House of Keys and one member not elected by anybody, the Lord Bishop, uh, chaired by Mr President with the Attorney General in attendance. In the chamber below, the House of Keys, 24 members elected by your good selves. Once a month they come together in this chamber and become Tinwald. Legco sit up there and the Keys uh, in the same pattern down here. The Keys and the Council really are there to introduce and debate and perfect new legislation. When they come into Tinwell, they deal with a whole range of other things, financial issues, the budget, they elect the chief minister, they appoint to committees, and they hold the government to account in here and also debate matters of urgent policy. The power moved from Castletown to Douglas in the early 1800s, and of course the Keys were sitting in their building in Castletown, Tinwald was sitting in the court in Castle Russian. But as power moved, they bought the old Bank of Mona next door and the council and the keys sat in, in there. But on this site, there was a sweet shop and some Victorian buildings. Tinwald was sitting in the old courthouse in Atlas Street. But because uh, if they sat as Tinwald and then wanted to sit as the keys and the council, they had to walk that distance. And often in the rain, they decided this wasn't good enough, so they purchased the sweet shop and they built this splendid hall. James Cowell was the architect, a local man, and it was built between 1891 and 1894 at a cost of £3,500. It's remained largely unchanged. It's had a few refurbishments. Perhaps the biggest one was in 2006 when the uh, viewing gallery, the disabled gallery, was put in over there. Some fine stained glass. Uh, I think there must have been an outside window at one point. It now is lit from behind. It goes on to government office. It has lots of crests and shields. We have Deemster Parr, Bishop Hillsley, Bishop Wilson, Bishop Barrow, John Christian Kerwin of Milntown, the only man to be an MHK and an MP at the same time. He was considering editing the Evening Standard as well. <laughs> And four heads. On the right, Her Sovereign Majesty Queen Victoria, who came to the Isle of Man in 1847, but refused to get off her yacht. On the left, Godrin Croven, who beat the living daylights out of the Manx at the Battle of Sky Hill in 1079, proclaimed himself king. Next to Her Majesty, His Grace, the second Duke of Athol. Now, the Athels inherited the title Lord of Man from the Derbys, and when they did so, they then sold off the Isle of Man to the English crown for shed loads of money. His descendants, the third and fourth dukes, spent most of their time complaining that they hadn't had enough money for the island, and when they all finally left in 1829, they did so with a second, even larger cheque, leaving the Isle of Man in considerable debt. And next to Godred Croven is another Lord of Man, His Grace, the Seventh Earl of Derby. Now, he left the Isle of Man in the 1650s with a conscripted army of 300 Manxmen to fight for the royalist cause in the English civil wars. 
he was almost immediately captured by the parliamentarians and beheaded in, of all places, Bolton. Coming up the stairs, you will have seen the commemorative window to Ilium Doan, or William Christian of Milne Town. He was the right-hand man of the seventh earl, and when his grace lost his head, Ilium Doan surrendered the Isle of Man to the parliamentary forces and took the comfortable position as governor. Now, when the king was restored and the monarchy was established again, the earl's son, the eighth uh, earl, captured Ilium Doan and had him shot. So one big happy family. That's how politics was done in times gone by. Behind us here we have the statutes of the island going back to the 15th century and behind the choir here we have the Hansard. Now Hansard is the official printed version of the proceedings of a parliament. It's actually named after a Mr Hansard, Thomas Hansard, who was the first printer in England to get the contract from the House of Commons to publish their proceedings. He was in prison several times for doing that, but then they realised it was actually quite a good thing to have a printed record, so they gave him the contract. The Isle of Man, this parliament, is leading the world in how it produces Hansard. In fact, other parliaments come here to see how it's done, and even the House of Commons is not as advanced as Tinwald. You'll see that every member has their own microphone, which comes on automatically when they speak. This is fed to a sophisticated voice recognition software, which immediately transcribes it into the printed word on the Hansard clerk's computers at the back. And all the Hansard right back to 1878, is all available online. It's a fantastic resource. Now, in those days, in 1887, there was no microphones, and the early Hansard in Tinwald was actually undertaken by reporters of the Isle of Man Times, sitting on the press bench, taking down every word that was spoken. It was no easy matter. It was later printed as columns in the newspapers, and then reprinted in these books which are stored here. I've glanced through these transcripts and have often come across sentences like Mr Farrance, who was almost inaudible, was understood to say that he was reluctant that the conference should disperse without some member or members expressing their feelings. And on another occasion Mr Stevenson followed, but not one word that he said Reach the ears of this reporter. In other words, will you stop mumbling over there in the corner? I came across another very telling speech in the late 1880s. It was made by Mr Lawton, MHK for Peel, in connection with a proposed bill to regulate the manufacture of explosives on the island. He said something quite extraordinary. I am sick of what is being said all around the country about the working man. They are our masters now. And we touch our hats to them. Laughter. It's all very well, but if they are to obtain a livelihood, they must take the risks that exist in manufactories which employ men. We must do all we can to minimise the risks without destroying the industries which employ the men. But to destroy an industry to prevent anyone dying forever? <laughs> More well, laughter. We cannot do it. I think we just need to hear that last sentence again. But to destroy an industry to prevent anyone dying forever, <laughs> well, we can't do it. 
In other words, if the working man wants a job, and if we're good enough to supply it to them, they must be reasonable and accept that one or two of them will get killed from time to time. You see, Mr. Lawton wouldn't have known a working man if he tripped over one. The fact was, in those days, no member in here was paid any salary or expenses. So quite naturally, the only people who could afford to stand were those of independent means. Advocates, retired clergy, farmers, businessmen, those sort of people. It wasn't until into the 19th century that proper salaries were allocated that anyone, even a tradesman or a working man, could afford to stand. And eventually that made this chamber truly representative of the island's society. Nowadays, anyone on the electoral register who's lived on the island for more than five years and is over 18 can stand to be a member of the House of Keys. Well, talking about the working men there's, uh, and women, there's a few of them here, and they're going to sing their second song for us. Thank you. Uh, and now back to a much earlier era when the working man and woman really did know their place, and it wasn't here. Um, this is an anthem from the early 19th century, from the south of the island, and perhaps it contains a salutary warning to those who would aspire. Yeah. 
Well, as one of the presenters on the Mandate Current Affairs programme in the 1980s, along with David Collister, I sat through every sitting of Tinwald, about 70 in all over seven years, probably more than many current members have yet done, hundreds of hours. In all those years, probably the worst insult I can remember coming from an MHK was from West Douglas MHK, Clifford Irving, when he stood up and said... Mine's government couldn't run a wealth store on the beach. <laughs> well, not the most cutting insult, I'll admit, but nothing like the insults that were hurled at members of the House of Keys in the 1860s, which we're going to hear about now. They were hurled by this man, Mr James Brown, or Darkey Brown, as he was called, on account of being descended from a freed slave. He rose to the position of proprietor and editor of the Isle of Man Times. And he fought and campaigned for a change in the law to allow the Manx people to write, uh, have the right to vote for their representatives. At that time, it was the governor who appointed the members of the Keys. If there was a vacancy, they selected one or two people they would like to be considered, submitted the name to him, and he chose the one. They sat in private. They didn't publish their proceedings. And James Brown, along with others, campaigned tirelessly for a change to this process to make it democratic. However, it was the passage of a particular piece of legislation through the Keys that brought matters to a head, as Mr Brown was severely critical of the way the Keys were handling it. The bill was the Douglas Town Amendment Act, a piece of legislation that would have given more powers to Douglas Town Council, something that many members of this honourable court were seriously opposed to. They didn't want the councillors to get above themselves. Mr Lamott, MHK, uh, described the council as... An elected body of mere tradesmen. You see, the tradesmen, the working men, weren't appreciated in this court. James Brown went into the fray, criticising the keys left, right and centre. When someone on here, in here said that the Douglas Council were only fit to run donkeys on the beach, that led to members of this court being referred to themselves as Don Keys. A great pun. <laughs> He levelled all sorts of accusations and the end result was, on the morning of the 15th of March 1864, he was summoned to appear before the Keys assembled in their chamber in Castletown, what nowadays we call the Old House of Keys. He was accused of contempt, but they did hear what he had to say. In fact, they were a captive audience. They had to hear his evidence, and he took great delight in reading all his insulting articles back to them, which took several hours. It hardly made matters any better. Amongst many other things he said, the keys were characterised by so much ignorance and illiberality. He particularly went for one of them. Mr Lamotte, with his accustomed bullying tone and disregard for truth of all the despicable public characters we ever read of, we consider Mr Lamotte the most void of courtesy, decency and veracity, a vainglorious braggart without one single good quality of head or heart. 
one can assume that standing at the bar of the House and addressing the members with that tone didn't endear him to them. However, he didn't care. He finished by saying, You stigmatise what I say as a contempt and a breach of your privileges. Privileges indeed. You have no privileges. You do not represent the inhabitants of the island. The people did not send you here for that purpose. Therefore, I tell you, you do not represent them. I have nothing more to say in this matter. You may do with me what you please. You may fine and imprison me. You may cut off my ears. I can do without them. I will not retract a single word of what I've said, for I know the voice of the country approves of my conduct as a public journalist. Well, it didn't take long for the members to decide the verdict guilty of contempt. And Mr Brown was marched across the road there and then and straight into the Castle Russian jail for a sentence of six months. It's interesting to note, by the way, that that very Mr Lamotte, MHK, died of apoplexy in the George Hotel in Castletown two days later. (laughs) Unfortunately for the Keys, though, Mr Brown's imprisonment wasn't the end of the matter. He appealed to the courts in London and they ruled in his favour, saying that the Keys had acted outside their powers. They'd been sitting as a legislature and not in any judicial capacity. A fine point, but nevertheless, they hadn't got the power to imprison them. He was released immediately to a hero's welcome. But it didn't even end there. To add to their woes, he then sued the Keys for reparation and won considerable damages which they had to pay out of their own pockets. So don't mess with journalists. (laughs) They further conceded defeat in that within two years they'd passed the House of Keys Act, bringing into being the first general election which took place exactly 150 years ago this month. I should mention that there's an excellent book on this subject, The Struggle for Manx Democracy, which outlines all of that and it's available for sale in the Tynwald Library downstairs. Well, I mentioned earlier the first general election on the Isle of Man in 1867. We were well behind England in this area. Their great reform act of 1832 had dramatically changed the the electoral processes there. But we leapt ahead in 1881 by introducing voting rights for women in general elections. Not for all women, only those owning real estate, but that was a restriction insisted upon by the UK government, but it was a start. In fact, we were the first recognised parliamentary system in the world to give votes to women, and it was a further 37 years before it happened in the UK. During one of the debates to give women the vote, it was thought that women may then stand for the House of Keys. A member kindly suggested that the chamber would need larger seats if they did. and that this would have the effect of putting representation on a broader basis. (laughs) Hilarious. One member went on to say, If single women proved to have too much influence on the body politic, the bachelors of the island could always marry them. (laughs) Roars of laughter. Perhaps that's why it was another 52 years before a woman actually became an MHK. In 1933... Marion Shimon stood for the seat in Peel and she took it uncontested after the death of her husband, Christopher Shimon, 
At the sitting here in February 1933, the then speaker, Mr. Fred Klukas, welcomed her by saying, I have much pleasure in welcoming you as the new member for Peel. Your election does mark an epoch in the life of this ancient and honourable house. I must not say that the arrival of a lady in the house may create a precedent which will add a new terror to elections in the future. Perhaps I will say that it will add a new and greater interest. I welcome you very heartily to this house. She bided her time before her maiden speech, which she made three months later during the debate on the National Health Insurance Bill. It's quite clear from her contribution that members hadn't heard anything like it before. Here was someone speaking up on behalf of the hard-working women in the community, those women who only kept going throughout the arduous summer season by sheer force of will. Women, in fact, like my own mother, who at this time was working in the family boarding house on the promenade. Any suggestion that the benefits of the women should be cut was something Marion Shimin couldn't accept. This bill affects women so nearly that I must say a few words. I am not convinced by what I have heard today that there is any need to cut down the women's benefit. Members will have noticed that since we started on this bill, we have been making it easier for men to keep in insurance. And here, when we come to the women's side, we're going to cut them down. It is the women, the poorer women, foremost of all, who have to work so hard that are being economised on. This island depends so much on the visiting industry, and the visiting industry depends so much on the labour of the poorer people. But the poor women, who work very hard in the summer, from early morning until late at night, are the people we propose to cut. And then, we hear, they are malingering. But I doubt very much if there is any large percentage. The great majority, I'm sure, don't. They work hard in the rush and bustle of the summer, and they keep going until the end of the season, some of them by sheer force of will, forcing themselves to work on, and when the season finishes, they simply collapse. I think it most uncalled for and most ungenerous to say they are malingering. I feel very modest about speaking on this subject at all, but for the honour of the women of this island, I think I must protest against some of the remarks that have been made here this afternoon. I hope the House will not support the bill, and I shall vote against it. Well, there you are. <laughs> Actually, the House then adjourned. Normally, I, I always thought that the next member would stand up and congratulate the new member on their maiden speech, but they just all left. <laughs> Can I just draw your attention to a couple of DVDs, Happy Holidays Volume 1, 
We have in this a tourist film shot in this very chamber in 1939. Extraordinary footage with the Earl Granville presiding with all the actual members of the Keys in here and Marion Shimin is featured making a speech. That's uh, quite an archive item. And also while we're on that, this bizarre little movie, I See a Dark Stranger, you can order this off Amazon. It uh, stars Deborah Carr and Trevor Howard. It was made in 1949. It's a bit of a wartime caper. It's uh, a spy movie, but part of it does come to the Isle of Man. And it actually comes into this chamber where the spy who has a little book which has the details of the D-Day landings is sitting in the public gallery there during a sitting and puts the book in between the crease of the chair. I have looked and it's not there now, but um, it's extraordinary shots of the Isle of Man. I see a dark stranger. So uh, this parliament lays claim, as you know, to be the oldest continuous parliament in the world, dating back to 979. And in 1979, we celebrated our millennium with that amazing year-long festival, the cost of which has never been revealed. <laughs> However, what we can say is that it produced the highest visitor numbers in the island's history. 634,000 people came to visit that year, higher even than the previous record set in Edwardian times. One of the many legacies from that year is the piece of music we're going to hear now. It's the Athol Salute to Tinwald 1979 by the late pipe major Sandy Spence. It was presented to Tinwald by the Athol Highlanders and was performed by them during their visit to the Isle of Man in Millennium Year. It's going to be played for us by Mr Jonathan King, the Deputy Clerk of Tinwald and the Clerk to the Council. Jonathan is an accomplished musician, conductor of the Mediside Choral Society and the Tinwald Choir, an organist and a bagpipe player. He's arranged this piece for the RAF band that'll be playing at Tinwald this year, and he's also played it on the Wurlitzer in the Villa Arcade, but this is the first time he's played it publicly on the bagpipes. Um, and I should clarify, because I know you're all thinking of that oft-quoted definition of a gentleman, someone who can play the bagpipes but who doesn't. Um, that's not the case here. Both Jonathan and indeed Mr President are experts on the bagpipes and both are perfect gentlemen. Jonathan.
Thank you very much. Definitely a first for the Tinwell Chamber. Before our next uh, musical item, just a, a few anecdotes from my many years sitting on the bench there. I've heard, as I say, hundreds of hours of debates and met many colourful, interesting members. I, I'm going to be fairly circumspect about what I say, but uh, fortunately none of them have turned up here today, so it gives me a little bit of leeway. I think one of the most colourful ha had to be the East Douglas MHK, Dominic Delaney, who had a wonderful way with words. He would come out with a phrase like, um, Your Excellency, members are becoming in danger of being entrenched in their own dogma, <laughs> which is a perfectly sensible sentence, but it just has an extraordinary feel about it. Um, next to him in, in Douglas there was Matty Ward. I remember one morning he said something that the clerk couldn't hear, and he said, pardon, and Matty said, you'll have to forgive me, Your Excellency, I've got the wife's teeth in today. <laughs> Whether that made it into Hansard, I don't know. Dominic stood up one July sitting. It was very, very hot. Major General Lawrence New was presiding. And he asked if members could take their jackets off. And His Excellency said, yes, provided I don't see any braces. Now, Dominic used to wear bright red felt braces. So there was this bizarre scene of him getting up and bowing and going out through the doors, which were open, of course, to let the air in, taking his jacket off. We were all watching him, taking his braces off, throwing them onto the windowsill, putting his jacket back on, coming in and bowing, sitting down, then taking his jacket off again. <laughs> but protocol was maintained. I have a little story about Dominic. I haven't really said this in public before. I hope he won't mind if I say that he was well known for wearing a toupee. Now, he, he was very relaxed about this because one day he came in and he just wasn't wearing it anymore. And that was fine. You know, everyone thought, well, pity you didn't do that years ago. <laughs> but there was one day he was wearing it in here and it was a very dry debate, obviously very necessary, but we weren't getting much news out of it. And I was sitting on the bench there and I was reduced to thumbing through the standing orders of Tinwald. Uh, and these are the rules that govern how business is conducted and the conduct of members. And I came across this one particular standing order, rather concerned me. So I sent a note to the clerk of Tinwald. Now, during a sitting, there are messengers sitting at the edge of the aisles there that pass notes between members or from the press to, to the members and keep everybody's glasses full of water. So I sent a messenger uh, down to Professor St. John Bates, who was the clerk at the time, sitting there in his black gown and his little wig, and he was writing in some huge ledger, probably copying up the votes because there was no electronic voting in those days. And this note dropped on his desk, and it said that the members of the press are very concerned that Mr Delaney might be in breach of Standing Order 22. Now, of course, he had no idea what that was, so wearily he put his pen down and he pushed the ledger away from him and he got the standing orders out and he leafed through to number 22 which read every member shall have his head uncovered whilst present in Tyndall. <laughs> <laughs> well I thought it was quite funny. <laughs> he didn't. Holding my eye he just crumpled up the note <laughs> dropped it into the bin and carried on writing. 
I remember one lunchtime I was up in that room there, which was at the time Manx Radio's press room, and everybody had gone. I was doing a live report into the news, and then I was going to go off for some lunch. And when I went to the door at the far end, there's two, uh, there's a double door. As I turned the doorknob, it came off in my hand. It was locked from the outside, so there's no way anybody could get in. I did panic a little bit. I had to ring government office external number to get back in to find Frank Jocken, who was one of the messengers, who eventually came up here at about 20 past one with a large aluminium ladder and propped it up against there. And I had to climb out (laughs) of there, a bit like the princess in the tower, (laughs) and go and get some lunch. The only member we had any run-ins with, and it all ended very happily, was the member for Michael, Mr David Cannon. He sat in, the seat L is in there at the moment. His son is now an MHK. But David, at the time, this was in the 80s, mandate had just started. For technical reasons, which are nothing to do with Manx Radio, you couldn't actually hear the FM signal, the VHF signal, in Kirk Michael, because the government hadn't put any transmitters up for there for Kirk Michael. Um, And he, therefore, refused to appear on Manx Radio at all as a protest. So we'd ask him time and time again, no, he wouldn't do an interview. And we would say, we've asked Mr Cannon if he'd like to speak on this, but uh, he's declined. And this went on for months and months and months, until one day there was a debate in the morning that so aggravated him, he just couldn't help himself. And as he left, walked past me, for the lunch break, speaking of himself in the third party, he said, "Uh, Mr Cannon would accept uh, a request for an interview if asked. (laughs) So I rushed out after him and I said, so you'll do an interview, will you, Mr Cannon? He said, yes, yes, I will. I said, well, I'll only do it on one condition, that you'll stop this protest and that every time we ask you, you'll do what all the other members do and at least consider our request. Oh, no, no, I'm not doing that, no. It's just this once. So I said, well, in that case, I'm not going to interview you. (laughs) So that was on the Wednesday morning. On the Friday, I opened the Manx paper, and the headline was, MHK gagged. (laughs) (laughs) I never want to miss an opportunity. Mr Cannon had, of course regaled the newspapers with this, who, of course, hadn't bothered to ring me to see what the real reason was. It was news editor Guard has refused to interview Mr Cannon, etc., etc. Anyway, it was all sorted, and he even wished us happy birthday on our 50 years of Manx Radio a few years ago. So, another musical item. Kujan Kujak. Kujan Kujak, sorry. Again. Thank you. Um, here's a piece of music to, to ruffle all those excitable politicians. Uh, well, to unruffle all those excitable politicians. Um, this is Sunrise, Irina Grania, uh, a song fairly recently composed by Bob Carswell.
So we come to our final little reenactment here of an extraordinary incident that took place in this court on the morning of Wednesday, the 19th of February, 1986, when I was summoned, rather like James Brown, to the bar of this very court, sworn in and required to answer questions from the members of Tinwald about an interview I had broadcast the previous week on Mandate. Now, at this time, the Isle of Man was totally transfixed by a huge issue that Tinwald was to decide upon one that has had a profound effect on all of us ever since. Who to give the newly created telecoms licence to? At the time, British Telecom operated our telephones, but Tinwald wanted to take control of this and issue a licence to operate to the best bidder. There were two contenders for this valuable contract. One was the incumbent British Telecom, who promised to set up a wholly owned subsidiary Manx Telecom if they won, and that gives you a clue as to how this all ended, <laughs> and another great international player, Cable and Wireless. Both had a huge presence on the island leading up to this debate, and both had prepared top-secret documents containing their bids. Now, David Collister and I divided up the reporting of this issue for mandate. He followed the fortunes of British Telecom, and I followed cable and wireless. I remember one morning, during our bits of banter between items on mandate, David mentioned that he'd been given a new British Telecom tie. I remarked that that was more than I'd had from cable and wireless. And by the time we'd come down from the studios at the end of the programme, Cable and Wireless had delivered a brand new tie <laughs> still in its cellophane to reception. And believe it or not, for the first time ever, I'm wearing it today. <laughs> so on the Monday of the week in question, the details of the two bids had been made public. And on the Wednesday, it was on the agenda in here for members to debate and decide. The members of the public had their own views as to who should get the contract, and one person who was strongly opposed to British Telecom getting the contract was David Turner, Nod Turner, a local businessman with his own telecoms company, ITEL, and his son, Dewan, is currently an MLC. During the previous week, I had broadcast an interview on Mandate with Nod in which he claimed that an MHK had told him of the existence of a secret report recommending that British Telecom get the contract. And this was before members had had any chance to decide it. Well, Victor Neal was furious. He was the MHK for West Douglas and on the committee that was pulling this all together for members to debate. The claim that such a report existed outraged him. It was a slur on the impartiality of his committee's work, he said. As members assembled here on the Tuesday morning, Victor demanded that Nod be brought down from the public gallery and cross-questioned about his claim. But Victor didn't get very far, as all Nod ever said that morning was... <laughs> he was asked, who told you about the existence of this other report? Nothing to say. Well, who showed it to you? I have nothing to say. Did anybody? Altogether? Nothing to say. And so it went on. In the end, they gave up and decided they would get me here the next morning under oath to tell them who the MHK was that had made this claim. And I still have my summons here. 
written by the then clerk of Tinwald, Robert Quayle. I had to attend with the tape recordings and the transcripts of the interview. Now, looking at it, I see that I'm summonsed under the Tinwald Proceedings Act 1876. You remember earlier how James Brown had been summoned by the Keys when they weren't really empowered to do so and put in prison. So, shortly after that, Tinwald passed an act to make sure that the next time they did this, there'd be no doubt that they did have the powers of the court to imprison and fine. So I turned up on the Wednesday morning with my tape recorder and the tapes with the transcripts and, most importantly, with my legal counsel, an energetic young advocate starting to make a name for himself in Dickinson Crookshank, David Doyle, who is now, of course, his honour, the first teamster. I stood at the bar over there and was sworn in. It was mostly an exchange between me and Victor Neal, who was determined to find out the name of the MHK who'd claimed this secret report existed. In the chair was Major General Lawrence New, who reminded me... Mr Guard, you are under oath, and you are obliged to answer any questions put to you by the honourable members. I must warn you, if you fail to answer these questions, you could be punishable as in contempt of court. Mr Neal started by giving the background to my interview with David Turner the week before and going through how Mr Turner had claimed uh, an MHK had said there was a secret report. Did Mr Turner at any time indicate who the MHK was? No. Have you any idea who the MHK was that they were referring to? I neither inquired from Mr Turner on tape or off tape as to the identity of the MHK. Now, as it happens, I actually hadn't asked David who the MHK was, and he hadn't told me. If I had known and felt, as journalists do, that they should protect their sources, I probably couldn't have told the members here and would have been in contempt. Would I have done that? Well, I would certainly have taken legal advice from my advocate. But there was something more embarrassing looming, because I had been given a different secret report by an MHK for my information. It was just a technical analysis of the two bids. It didn't recommend one side or the other, and certainly wasn't the one alluded to by David Turner in his interview with me. Stupidly, I admit, I had mentioned during a programme the previous week that I had this report, though I didn't reveal its contents. Had you seen a copy of the report? I had seen a copy, yes. And where did you get it from? I got it from an MHK. Now, I had guessed I was going to be asked this and would quite happily have refused to answer the question. Would you name him? Yes, I spoke to him last night. Now, in fact, the MHK who had given me this report was the MHK for Ramsay, Charles Kane. And I had indeed rung him the night before and asked him what I should do if this question came up. In typical fashion, he said, oh, I don't care. Tell them it was me. Mr. Kane then asked me a question. Mr. Guard, would you confirm that the copy of the report I gave you was for your eyes only to enable you to better understand the nature of the bids? That is true, Your Excellency, but on the understanding that I would not show it to anybody. And did you, in fact, show it to anybody? No. At this point, Mr. Cannon decided to ask me a question. Will you accept that you are an experienced interviewer and that those you interview might not always be fully cognizant of what they may or may not say? And it might be a little more helpful 
if you did actually suggest to them that they were, shall we say, going over the top. Now, at this point, a rather naughty thought flashed through my mind, and I was tempted to answer, well, if that was the case, then a good number of members in this court would never be on my programme. <laughs> However, I knew that His Excellency certainly wouldn't stand for that, so I merely replied that it wasn't in my interests to persuade people not to speak to me. So the questioning went on for considerable time, and eventually David Turner was called back, and in the end, it was agreed that it was all probably a misunderstanding which they'd never get to the bottom of, and all witnesses were discharged so that members could get on with the main debate, having agreed there was no secret report. Not before, though, a further spanner was thrown into the works by Mr Speaker Sir Charles Carouche, a stickler for parliamentary procedure, the longest-serving Speaker in the Commonwealth, and not someone to be trifled with. He stood up and said, If we are going to bring witnesses to the bar of this court on charges of contempt, cable and wireless should be here, and British Telecom. There is no question both have behaved in a manner which is contemptuous. Highness, you will find it an offence to attempt to bribe honourable members. What have they done? They have offered me, amongst others, a trip to London to have a look at the installations of the Palace of Westminster. We have all been wined and dined to an extent that we have never known before in relation to any project coming before this government. And so he went on, all guns blazing. In the end, Dr Mann had said that, as far as he knew, the entertainment had been offered equally by both sides and no advantage had been gained. <laughs> so they went on to debate the actual issue. Both parties were offering the world satellite uplink dishes, fibre optic cables under the sea, but the one distinguishing feature between the bids was that British Telecom, in addition to all of that, were offering a cheque of £7.5 million. Pounds. Now, that was a huge amount of money in those days. A cheque to the Manx government, spend it as you want, £7.5 million. Pounds. The contract was awarded to British Telecom. Next day, I went down to the Admiral's Rest, where the cable and wireless team were staying, to get their reaction, and I spoke with their head man, Howard Klein, who was, of course, incandescent. I asked him for his reaction, and I've never forgotten what he said. Oh, if I'd have known that the Manx government wanted us to, to offer them a bribe, we'd have offered them a bribe. But I thought we were playing it straight. And with that, they packed their bags and left. And that's how politics works. So that brings us to the end of our little fancy here this afternoon. It just remains for me to thank you all for coming and sticking the course to John and to Annie and to Kurjan Kujak, to Jonathan King, and also to Mr President for allowing us permission to use the chamber. That's it. This court now stands adjourned. <laughs>